Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night. We stole my whole house, was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create, not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I tried Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Our guest today is David Ridley. And David was recently one of our guests on the Unmuted Sessions. Uh, if you've not heard an Unmuted, you really should check it out. They're fantastic. And David Ridley was there, and, and he's here because he's a perfect guest for FDI. He founded Invesco Real Estate in 1983 as CEO for 27 years between 83 and 2010. He was responsible for developing the firm's investment processes, operating policies, staffing, operating philosophy, and the firm's cultural values. Under David's direction, the firm grew into a multinational company with more than 400 employees and $65 billion in assets under management. That makes it one of the largest and most diversified real estate investment firms in the world. Respected for its consistency, stability, exceptional client service, and strong performance, Invesco developed a reputation as one of the world's premier real estate funds management firms, managing assets for prestigious institutional clients, including pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and global corporations. In recognition of Invesco's success, David was named as one of its senior managing directors in 2013 responsible for chairing the firm's global institutional management committees and leading its institutional client engagement efforts for the firm's then $800 billion in assets under management and its 6,000 employees worldwide. This is a growth story. Let's listen in to hear more. Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. I'm John Coleman here with my partner, Luke Rausch. And today we have the privilege of welcoming David Ridley to the show. Hi, David. Hello there, John. Well, I have to tell you, I'm really excited about this one. So I've known David for around a decade now. David was the founder and CEO of Invesco Real Estate, which grew to be a more than $60 billion real estate platform 
global, everywhere in the world, spanned tons of different products. And he also was just a great advocate for clients at the firm and someone that I considered a close friend and mentor. And so it's really a privilege to have him on today. And we're excited to uh, learn how to build a $60 billion real estate platform, David. That should be a pretty easy uh, task for you in the next 30 minutes or so. Is that right? <laughs> right. Well, talk to us a little bit about how you got started. We'd love to hear more about your life story as we dive in and just how you got into real estate investing. You know, John, that's a good question because when I graduated with my finance degree from the University of Texas in 1975, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But the one thing I did know I didn't want to do was real estate. I wanted to be in stocks and bonds and all those really neat things. And somehow the Lord has a sense of humor and shoehorned me right in to real estate. So it was kind of by accident. But if you don't mind, I'll just give you a little background on myself. I was born in San Antonio, and my dad had been a B-17 pilot in the war, and everything was new, you know, and he was the first out of eight that had ever gone to college. So we ended up getting transferred around a bit, and it was destiny that we'd moved back to Dallas because my mom died when I was nine, and dad wanted to get us back where there was family. So it was just me and dad and my sister moved away to go to college. She went to UT as well. That's why I ended up down there, I think. And uh, being with my dad all that time, he was a pretty hardened guy. You know, he did, there wasn't a lot of child rearing books back then. I don't believe he was a believer when he died as well. I hope he was. But he would tell me over and over, we'd be driving down the road and he'd see someone digging a ditch or working on a telephone pole. And he would say, son, do you want to do that when you grow up? And he would just start beating into me. I was going to college. And so that was my beginning. So there's one thing I knew I was going to do, if nothing else in life, I was going to one day pass away, but I was going to pass away with a college degree. So that's how I happened. And, and I went down to UT and got out and came back and was fortunate enough to get into a management training program of a small life insurance company. And I went through this, all the different departments, and they liked me enough in the real estate group that they hired me there. And so I started off and our biggest deal I think I ever did was like $800,000. <laughs> <laughs> on a warehouse and but it was a good start. Was faith always important to you, David, or when did that become a part of your life? You know, um, growing up without a mother and dad was never at home. Okay. So that was good for me. I thought that was fantastic, but I was without any real great leadership. And there was this woman down the block who had three of the most beautiful sisters you've ever seen, who I really thought were cute and a son that I played in my little football teams with in elementary school, right through high school with Danny. And that woman was a godly woman and she prayed for me constantly. And so sophomore year comes around, I was getting in more trouble. Junior year was no better. And I finally thought I've had it. A friend of mine asked me to read the Bible. I opened it up and it made sense for the first time in my life. I understood the value of Christ's sacrifice and I prayed that night in bed between my junior and senior year that he would come into my life. And it was a remarkable change for me. And I jumped out of bed and drove over to her house the next morning to let her know. And she was a godly woman and someone I think about constantly and uh, changed me forever. That's fantastic, David. And as you navigated, you mentioned you didn't really want to get into real estate. You wanted to get into anything but real estate. So how did you end up in real estate? 
Well, there was a program where you rotated throughout the uh, company and one of those was a real estate area and there was an Aggie in there and that Aggie decided he wanted to go back to College Station and open some ice cream stores. <laughs> so I had written a really nice note my dad had taught me to, to do back in the uh, low-tech days, telling him how much I enjoyed it in that department. I'd done that earlier. So when he quit, they invited me down. And David, you know, maybe just for purposes of just listeners who are trying to get a sense of scope and scale, maybe share a bit about that in terms of what your work in Invesco became, but maybe also speak to kind of why you went about that work and, you know, creation of jobs and sort of other things. It was a clear motivating factor for you. What happened was that was my start in my career with South and Life. I was fortunate enough to be hired by a large insurance company called Metropolitan Life. And they had their top person in the investment area come to Dallas and made a little speech to us and told us where the world was trending and it was towards managing other people's money, okay? He said the the trillions of dollars that are out there, the investable dollars are located in pension funds, endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that planted a seed in me that I wanted to be part of that. And so as fate would have it, this company, I I was making a little bit of a reputation for myself in Dallas and this company that had been around a long time in Dallas invited me over to start that kind of group. So I started it from scratch. It was me and a secretary, no clients, no money under management. They had a relationship with Texas teachers they were impressed enough to give us a chance to be one of the firms that would do that for them. And that's how it started. You know, they were okay with my qualifications. We got a contract signed and we had a non-discretionary relationship with one of the toughest staffs I've ever had. And uh, that's how the thing got started, but it was tough. There were 10 years with only one client. And the worst thing about it was we had no idea how to get another one. Okay. And, And so that's how I got started. It was a very humbling experience, uh, to say the least, competing against all the big boys, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, uh, some of these firms you don't know, but Reef and some other ones back then. So I don't know where you want me to go from there, but I'll tell you, it was a a rough start. Well, talk to us a little bit about that journey, David, because I've heard this story before and uh, just how you came to Invesco, your interactions with Charlie, and then You know, as I remember, there was a pivotal point in the history of the business where you decided that you couldn't do it on your own. And I'd love to hear you just tell that story as well. Yeah. So I remember sitting on the kitchen counter trying to decide if I was going to make this move and uh, start this firm, you know, and Candy's 80 year old grandmother was sitting there in the kitchen and she goes, David, in 30 years, it won't make a bit of difference. So that was (laughs) she really started this, I guess. So I jumped off the counter and drove my little purple opal down to uh, downtown Dallas and joined the firm. And I had been into it for about two years. And when sort of this pivotal moment came, I'd been asked to come down to Houston by maybe one of their leading brokers. And I went down there and I looked at warehouses all day long with their staff. And we were looking for investment opportunities all the time. And that night at dinner, after dinner, I was trying to bond with these folks so they bring me product and not others. The leader in that group, this powerful broker, kind of took his 
spoon and dinged the glass and he he sort of stopped the meeting. I thought he was going to say something nice, but he looked at us and looked specifically at me and he says, David, what makes you think you have any chance to build this firm? Look who you're competing against. And he started naming firms. And I, I was a bit in shock. And I remember chills running up down my spine because I realized he was really right. I didn't have much of a chance if I'd really studied it harder, done a little more due diligence, I probably would have never tried it. And uh, honestly, I don't even remember the rest of that dinner. I just remember getting back to the hotel room and opening the door. I walked back to it. It was near the Galleria. And there's this little wooden desk in the corner. And I sat at that desk and I just wanted to cry. I thought, man, I've ruined my career. I had a leadership position where I was. Maybe I can get my job back. Well, that's not going to happen. So I took a pad of paper and I wrote down and I filled up every line with my weaknesses. You know, why this was impossible. I wasn't smart enough. I didn't know how to sell myself, you know, just on and on. And I took that sheet of paper and I put it on the floor and I got down on my hands and knees and put my forehead on it. I remember that. And I just prayed, Lord, first, would you just take me out of this job and move me? But if you don't want to move me, then you be CEO and I'll be doorman or whatever else you want me to do here. But I'm done. And that went on for a while. And I stood up from that floor and I've never had this feeling in my life. It was like someone took a thousand pounds and lifted it off my back. Flew back to Dallas the next morning. Creativity returned. Had just optimism. I had no fear of failure. I wanted to do well for all these senior people at this company, but I, I literally had no fear of failure anymore. It wasn't mine to lose. And that changed everything. And the way God showed up, was he started introducing me to these people, John, that you know, that three of them retired with me and we went all the way together. And, you know, finding people is almost impossible, the right people. And I couldn't do it up to that point. And so he tangibly showed up with these uh, folks that we were able to team up with and do some great things. So I would say that we're in the middle of writing a book and there's three pillars in that book. And in the first one has to do with being securely centered. And I will tell you that securely centered me for the next 32 years. So it was a pivotal moment for me, John. When you talk about being securely centered, maybe just speak a little bit to what that looks like in the context of 32 years at a big company like Invesco. What does it look like to be securely centered and kind of salt and light where you're planted? You know, tangibly, you can see it because you don't have the warning signs would be anxiety, insecurity, you know, comparing yourself to others, all those things. And when I speak to college students, I call those the big sins in business for a believer. And even when I'm speaking secularly, so all those went away. I immediately hired two people. One of them I paid twice as much as me. And the other was David Farmer. Johnny, you remember, I paid him like a quarter more than me. And it was about finding the right talent that could produce the right results for these clients and for our people that we were going to you know, work for and have work with us. And so that's what it looked like. And to be secure in myself, you know, yeah. And, and that helped move us into building a culture that was somewhat maybe unparalleled in our sector. Yeah, talk about that a little bit more 
David, because I've heard you talk about just the importance of your partners, uh, the people, the culture that you built. And I've also even seen you tell this story, this story about that hotel room and really handing things over to God and in the workplace so that you were really authentic about the way in which that transformed you. I'd love to hear you know, how you started to build that culture, how you found those people and how your partnership evolved in a way that was so powerful. You know, it was all experiential, John. I didn't have any textbooks that, that talked about this. So, so first of all, let me say I'm probably the least likely CEO you'll ever meet, okay? My favorite verse talks about where Paul asked for his thorn to be removed, whatever that was, and God said, no, my grace is made strong in your weakness. And I've always known that. I've always kept that promise close to my heart. So I didn't go into this thinking I was the smartest guy in the room by any stretch of the imagination. So once I was centered, it was easy for me to realize that I needed to gather the best athletes around me, but also we needed to build great teams. We had to have great, we call it extreme team engagement. You know, as God has created us to do life with others, we call that othering. And so I knew that was going to be key to us being able to win and have a healthy business. And so, you know, I happened to read, in fact, I'd left Invesco when I read this. I wish I'd known it when I was there, but it was St. Augustine in the fourth century had a quote. It said, humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence in the soul where that virtue does not exist, there can be no others except in mere appearance. And so when we would go out to build these teams, we would look for true humility. It was easy to find talent. It was hard to find humility in someone who could fit in. So we'd look for humility. We'd look for a team orientation as opposed to a star system. Then we'd try to find folks with a fire in their belly. So, you know, they get things done. Kind of like you, John, you're always walking around fast and getting things done. And, and that's what we needed. So from being centered, I was able to go find those kind of people who I thought were better than I was, and I was able to empower them. That's the biggest gift you can give anyone is empowerment. I learned that from a billionaire real estate guy in Dallas. I'm not even sure he's a Christian, but he would get his key leaders in the room and he would ask them questions that I knew he knew the answers to. So I started doing that. I would let them be the experts. I just became the band leader, the coordinator. And that enabled some folks to really grow and thrive. And we ended up with some great team play there, which resulted in a great culture, which becomes your character in the marketplace. People know you for that. And the business case for it is you end up with high stability. We never lost a partner. We never lost a client. I knock on wood. High stability of people in clients. That's hard to replicate, you know, when you're competing. So, David, as you kind of went from building a team, kind of world-class, humble individuals that had both fire in the belly, but also a servant's mentality, and it wasn't about them, it was about the mission that you guys were on together, maybe just talk a little bit about moving from building the team to building the portfolio of investments, a lot of capital put to work over time, and then maybe just extend off of kind of what that looked like then to the market today and what's changed maybe since you were running that group at Invesco? Well, that's a great question. Basically, one of the pivotal moments was a trip I made to Atlanta. We had just 
orchestrated a sale of our firm to Invesco. This was 1990. I flew over to Atlanta as a Saturday morning, I remembered, and opened my book up to show Charlie Brady, the founder of Invesco, what we were going to do to be successful. And it was this strategic multifamily investment program in the South, you know, it was all this. And we're sitting there as myself and a fellow named David Farmer. And, and he reached over right in the middle of my pitch. And he just closed the book. And, <laughs> and I, I kind of looked at him. I thought, oh, my gosh, that's, that can't be a good sign in any culture. And uh, he says, David, listen to me. He goes, this is all great. I've been very impressed with your diligence and how you run your business. And, you, you know, he went on about things that he liked. But he said, you do understand if you can't win, none of this makes any difference. None of this matters. And I began to realize at that moment in my life, he's right. We have to learn to win. So once you build great teams, it's about having a healthy environment we just talked about. But if you're not winning as part of those factors, if one of them isn't winning, then you're done. So that taught us the importance of this elite client engagement that we had to get really great at, which we did. And I've got to tell you, the way that happened, we were armed with great people. We developed something called the war room. We had the culture to do it. When we found out who our competitors were, we'd go in that war room and we would literally, we had a structure where we knew more about those competitors maybe than they knew about themselves. And we juxtaposed those strengths and weaknesses against our own. We would figure out ways to be more competitive. Part of having a great firm is the ability to have great meetings. <laughs> and we had great meetings. We had rules of the room. You had to check your ego at the door. There was no rank in the room. If you're at the table, you had an obligation to disagree, you know, when you needed to. Then when you left the room, you're friends. And those are the rules. And we had the most robust, great meetings around winning. And they worked. And so we started, once we got this together, it was all about having a value proposition that made sense, et cetera. Just absolutely amazing preparation. And once we got all that together, we just started winning clients. It was amazing. We went from one client to we first win was state of Nevada. In fact, point on, it went to Los Angeles County, then Colorado. I remember almost crying on the phone. I had to hide my tears from the guy that ran Colorado because I never thought we'd get a second client, much less a third one. So, yeah, that's how we started winning. And it was around having a healthy environment where people could be empowered and grow and it's just a more holistic approach. And it's not a secret anymore. McKinsey has studied this, thousands of companies, and they determine firms that focus on their culture, meaning their health and factors that cause great cultures are four times more successful than firms that focus more on their acquisition or their ability to execute and operate. They're just more important if they're focusing on those things equally with those operational executional things. So we just happen to really get that. David, that was one of the more fascinating things about the culture that you built. I remember, and I've told the story elsewhere, you know, when you'd walk into your offices in Dallas, right behind the reception desk, there was a big painting that had firefighters and teachers and police officers on it, because those were your clients. Those were the beneficiaries of these public funds that were investing with y'all. And there was a real sense in your group at Invesco Real Estate that 
the clients really mattered and that that's why you were there. And that's the purpose of what you were doing. It wasn't just winning with clients. It was winning for clients and making sure that you were guardians of the capital that they were entrusting you with. Where did that come from for you? And how did you instill that in everybody at the company? You know, everything, and you know this, everything comes down from leadership. So as a leader, it's all going to reflect you. And that was a little bit of it, to be honest, was my natural personality. But what really honed this was having one non-discretionary client for 10 years. That shaped us, man. There were many, many of our competitors that had commingled funds, had hundreds of clients. They did not understand the servant's heart that it took to satisfy one high demanding client for 10 years. So the only way to quickly exit our firm would be to not get that. And, you know, if you didn't have that characteristic about you, you would wean yourself out really quickly. So that came down to this humble heart that we had with these clients, and we just couldn't be wrong, you know, in the way we executed that. So we did have a servant heart, and they got to know that, and they felt it, and we developed accountability through, we called it the Invesco Report Card. So it was all about building trust. It wasn't about investing money. It was having trust built. And then it was about investing money in uh, high levels of accountability. And one thing that really helped us to continue winning back to that topic was we developed the postmortem process so that when we lost, we'd all get in that room within five days and find out why we lost. And no fingers could be pointed because we're all very potential to lay down a stinker here and there, which I'm probably doing right now, John. <laughs> but it was definitely very disciplined in the culture of clients or everything just sort of permeated. And that picture you talk about, we talked about that all the time in quarterly meetings, you know, that we would have, and I would be speaking, we'd refer to that picture. And, and I'd ask everybody in the room, if you're involved in sales and client engagement, raise your hand. And everybody in the room had to raise their hand before we could go on with a meeting. Because, you know, these smart investment people don't want to be known as marketing people or client, not necessarily client people. And they had to be in our culture. I have seen David stop many a meeting until every executive raised their hand for the who's in sales uh, <laughs> question. So absolutely authentic. Any good stories about what that looked like, David? I remember one that you told me about the Boy Scouts coming to Dallas, for example, but any great examples of how that looked in action? Oh, gosh. You know, uh, yeah, that Boy Scout one. I went around, I, I actually... Uh, did a survey of all of our Dallas team anyway. And we had like 20 Eagle Scouts. I had no idea. I never made it past the Cub Scouts. <laughs> so I was so happy to use that statistic, but it was the one of the toughest presentations we've ever had. And uh, they were tough. They loved to ask the toughest questions. And this time they asked my colleague, who's now our CEO in Invesco, the address of a property that we invested in his city. And we didn't know that address. <laughs> We knew the basic block it was on. I remember leaving that thing and pounding my steering wheel. I was so mad that we blew it. You know, we didn't make it. And they were always that tough, but we won the account, praise the Lord. And uh, we ended up having them as a client and they were very tough. And we would have to remind ourselves, it doesn't matter how tough they are. We're here to serve them. And we would just break our back to do it. And, you know, that's the way it was. Clients never wrong, although sometimes they have to be re-steered around investment ideas, <laughs> but they were never wrong, you know. 
maybe just um, taking a moment to look out the front windshield of where you think the market is going, David. What are just a couple of pieces of counsel that you would give to aspiring investors who are looking at current uncertainty in the market in the next 10 years? Just a couple of pieces of counsel that you would offer from your own experience. Well, what I would say is, I know I've lived in my business life, I've lived through seven recessions. Everyone had a black swan event to it. None of them did anybody guess. You can never forecast what that black swan's going to be. The best one's the GFC. You know, we, we suffered through the Great Recession in 0708. And it's been almost 11 years since we've had one. So I know it's coming. The black swan is out there. And it's probably happening right now with this new war we're engaged in. And every one of them is scary. But in my humble opinion, they all pass. And you have to look at it that way. You can't change the gravitational things that you're doing. And like everything these three pillars were talking about, you have to stay consistent with those disciplines that you have. So anyway, it's important to recognize they're going to happen and how you're prepared for them. In our business, there's lots of things that have changed, and I'm maybe not the expert anymore since I've been gone almost seven years, but but we all know what's happened to office buildings. Obviously, a black swan was COVID. That was a big hit when that hit us. Uh, office buildings are not nearly occupied like they were. Amazon and others came along and changed retailing. That's left us primarily with industrial and multifamily as the darlings of the investment space these days. That's taken our cap rates, which are the first, that's how you measure returns. That's your first year's return in real estate. It's taken that to historic lows. In my earlier career, in fact, a friend of mine even wrote a paper. The answer is nine. Okay. You bought real estate on a nine. And I remember seeing somebody took an eight and seven eights return on something. And I thought they were crazy. They were not correlated to treasuries. <laughs> it was incredible. So now you've got the most expensive apartments and industrial properties you've ever seen out there. So people are having to lean into different things to satisfy clients. And some of those things are like medical office buildings look better than they've ever looked. Self-storage, even residential mortgages are being, you know, all this, but through various conduits, uh, the problem with those was bite size, but now Invesco's in a joint venture of some kind that they're able to buy the bigger uh, tranches of that. Uh, loans. Now making lots of loans. It's not your traditional money center bank anymore, your insurance company. There's a lot of loans that our guys are making, a private REIT they formed to get to the retail markets. So all that's new since I left. So every year, you know, it's changed. And uh, they laugh at me now. They say, you couldn't even work over here anymore, Dave. <laughs> you wouldn't know what's going on. And I say, you're probably right. You're always having to change and be flexible. Well, the funny thing is that on the one hand, some of the facts and circumstances change, but part of what I take away from your commentary is that the most important things around team, why you do what you do, how you care for clients, those are more timeless principles than they are timely. Facts and circumstances are timely, but core things are usually timeless. I call them gravitational. They're things that have never changed in my career. I remember getting in before the sun came up and talking about how we're going to win clients and who we were going to be. And I remember making decisions that are still good decisions today. But one was we were not going to focus on any one property type. 
We were going to be the four main food groups, which I won't bore you with. We were not going to be a Southwestern exposure. We were going to be national, and that turned into global. We were not going to be one risk level. We were going to be up the scale from core real estate to value added to opportunistic. And we didn't want any clients having more than like five or 10% of our business. And we got that done eventually. When I started, we had one client who's 100%. So all those things are good business disciplines, but we got there, in my opinion, more predictably because of the disciplines around the three pillars. It's building that kind of uh, culture. And it's the soft stuff that some people don't understand that keeps them and marginalizes them towards not being able to be a really great larger competitor. And David, I know you've been up to some really interesting stuff lately. You've been kind of retired, I guess, although you've transitioned to some other things. Before we do that, you know, there are a lot of folks listening to this podcast who, like you, exist in larger, diverse organizations with all different types of people. And you led a, a large, diverse organization where people had different faiths or no faith at all. What advice would you have to those in those organizations about living their faith authentically in those types of diverse environments that aren't necessarily faith-based or faith-driven? You know, that's a great question. I was convinced, you know, I, I mentioned that godly woman, her name was Nelda Hassel. You know, when I first found the Lord and was saved, I had my four spiritual laws book and I went to airports. I went all over the place in witnessing and, and that's not wrong. You know, that was a very rewarding thing. But as a CEO in a multi-faith company and, and that and so forth, you obviously can't do that. So what Nelda had told me, even back then, she says, you need to pray that God will bring people into your life that he wants you talking to. You need to just relax and pray that the Lord will open those doors. And so I've always had that feeling that that's what I needed to do. And God has been good about doing that. So we didn't go out to find just Christians. We went out to find the best talent we could. And the lower staff, as they interviewed people, they could see they're really talented. Our job in the upper management was to figure out who they were really personally, who their culture was and how were they humble as we talked about it and all those things. And, and it didn't matter if they're Christians. We ended up with a lot of Christians. But my feeling was it was to be salt and light and people knew who we were in our hearts. We wouldn't hide it, but we didn't put it on our sleeve and try to push it. There was a woman out in California, I was told the other day by our new CEO, he said she almost didn't join us because she thought we were a Christian organization. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's funny because we've never advertised ourselves as being a Christian organization. But people can see your values and who you are, and maybe sometimes it seeps through. But our job is to our people first and our clients, then the stockholders benefit. And our obligation is to have great people in that we can get great clients with who will then benefit our stockholders. And I was fortunate to lead one of my bosses to Christ once, you know, I mean, it does happen, but it's not something that was on the front end. And David, you've kind of taken a lot of the lessons you learned building a company over the course of a few decades, and you're now talking to others about those. And I hear you even have a book coming together. Would you mind talking about kind of what's happened after uh, Invesco Real Estate and what you're up to today? Yeah, we traveled. We had a lot of fun. We went to, I'd never been to Italy, believe it or not. We even had an office there and I'd never been there. 
but uh, we just had a ball. And one day Candy and I looked at each other and we said, we are so done with traveling. You know, I had 10 million miles on just American, you know, during my business life. So we settled down and my prayer was, I'm not going to go look for presentations, but I'm going to be open to do it. So Lord, if you'll please open the right doors. And he did that through a couple of organizations. I started speaking to college students and I love doing that. I love uh, for 25 years or more, I've been mentoring young business people. Now it's college students and young business people. And that's where I really find satisfaction. Now, have I consulted? Yeah, I'm affiliated with, I should say, I guess I collaborate with Dr. Chip Roper, a brilliant man out of New York who was called out of the pastor. He was business in 20 years as a pastor, then called back to New York City from Philadelphia to minister to Christian executives. And uh, we met each other and together we're putting a book together. It's called Resilient Leadership at this point. Who knows what it'll be called? Building winning teams in the face of constant disruption. I kind of like to think about it as leading without regrets. I kind of like that title because what I wanted to do, I'd always watch Southwest Airlines and Herb Kelleher, and I would see how he led without regrets. I don't know that he was a Christian, but he really loved his people. And I can tell you, when you retire, your legacy that you leave behind is about a hundred times more important to you than you know it is or will be now. And so you want to leave behind people who knew that you loved them and really feel great about the way you treated them and were their leader. And so that's what drives me. And I want to write this book with Chip, not necessarily for me, John, as I said earlier to you, it's really, I think, going to give him legs as he builds his consulting business which I participate in some of those consulting assignments, but it, he's got more to play for here than I do. So, hey, John, I think you'll recognize my bio. You clean that up, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> David was good at living the right life, and I was good at editing it. I think it's the way. <laughs> yeah, I sent John my bio, and I think after he got up off the floor laughing, he rewrote it, and I'm still using it. <laughs> you guys are reading today. David, I think maybe the verse that you were looking for earlier was, is it 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 9? Yeah. He, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Yeah. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And just as you shared some about your career and just the humility that you do that with, it's clear in where you find power from. So I'm grateful for you taking some time and I'll turn it over to John to uh, wrap us up. Yeah. So David, we love to ask one question as we close out and then any parting thoughts from you. And that's just, what has God been teaching you recently and how has he been speaking to you? You know, re-impressing upon me the importance of habits that you need to stay with. And that means meeting with a coach before the game. And that's getting up every day and spending my first 30 minutes uh, with Christ and how important obedience is in the fruits of obedience. To walk in life with a spirit-filled mind takes obedience. It takes being obedient to God and listening to the Holy Spirit and staying with those disciplines. And so I've really had to work it. You know, it was easier when I was working, frankly, to have those routines than now. So he's been teaching me a lot about that and about being available 
you know, and, and not stopping the mentoring and being available for consulting when someone calls on me, et cetera. So it's a great life, you know, to be able to have time to actually do that and not have to punch a clock, you know, <laughs> that did. Powerful. That's powerful. David, that's awesome. And uh, look, we are really grateful to have been able to talk to you today. I know I personally am really grateful for the example you've set in the real estate industry and at the firm I used to work at and just the friendship that we've had over the years. And I know that this will be a great benefit to all those out there who are thinking about starting their own firms. Folks like my partner who went through their own decade long process of building businesses just like you. So thank you for taking the time to spend with us today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'm highly flattered you'd reach out to me. <laughs> no brainer, no brainer. Grateful for you, David. Blessings to you and appreciate your time. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. <laughs>